Hello there, welcome back. It's great to be with you again. I'm James Paniki. This is NLEX's weekly podcast covering the top regulatory stories of the moment. And today we mark the first anniversary of Schrems II. That's the decision by the European Court of Justice that upended the so-called privacy shield, which allowed transfers of data between the EU and the US. It was a monumental decision with wide-ranging implications for the entire world. And we'll get our reporters to walk us through those implications in just over 10 minutes' time. But first up, China's tech crackdown. This is arguably the most significant story that we've been covering all year, marking a regulatory pivot that's breathtaking in its scope. And whereas the regulatory action targeting, say, Alibaba, centred on antitrust concerns, the most recent enforcement action against ride-hailing company Didi appears to be focused on data. Yes, that's right, it's a data protection issue combined with old-school geopolitics, and it's all pointing to a revolution in the way China's homegrown big tech industry will need to do business in future. Today, we'll take a look at this issue from all sides, starting from data protection, and our Hong Kong-based correspondent Xu Wan has filed a fascinating piece of analysis for us. And she joins me right now. So, uh, Shuan, first off, tell me something about Didi, the company. What do we need to know? Uh, hi, James. Uh, Didi Chuxing is a Chinese flight hailing uh, app uh, company, uh, more often known as Didi. So it is essentially the Chinese version of Uber. Uh, in 2016, it actually uh, acquired the Chinese business of Uber. So it is uh, right now um, the biggest uh, ride-hailing app in China. Okay, and tell me something about how it came under the spotlight and what has happened over the past few weeks. Sure. So on the last day of June, it went public in the U.S., which was an IPO that was uh, widely expected uh, this year. Um, and then on two days later, on July the 2nd, uh, a Friday night, a Chinese regulator called the Cyberspace Administration, which is the country's internet regulator, uh, suddenly announced a cybersecurity review into the company, saying that there might be some security issues, and it also ordered a suspension of new user registration of the app. And then another two days passed, um, the same regulator ordered the removal of uh, the DD app, uh, which is the primary app of the company, to be removed from China's app stores. And then it later ordered another three apps owned by Chinese companies uh, to be removed from app stores. And then in the following week, uh, it required Didi to remove uh, another 25 apps uh, owned by the company from uh, app stores. And after that, the regulator came up with uh, a revised draft of um, the Measures for Cybersecurity Review, um, which specifically added a new provision saying that under the new rules, um, companies that process uh, personal data of more than 1 million users will have to go through a cybersecurity um, review before they can seek any foreign uh, listing. And uh, just a few days ago, I think last Friday, um, the regulator made another brief announcement saying that uh, it has uh, sent staff or officials 
to be stationed in the company together with officials from another six uh, state-level government departments to uh, be responsible for the cybersecurity review for uh, DD. Now, we've all been reading with great interest your reporting and the reporting of all of the China team at MLEX on the recent antitrust crackdown on tech in China. How is this related to that? So the Cyberspace Administration, uh, as I just said, is an internet regulator. It is heavily involved in the uh, legislation in data protection in China and also um, uh, enforcement of uh, targeting uh, data abuse uh, by companies. Uh, until, um, I think, two weeks ago, a lot of people's uh, attention on China's tech crackdown is on the antitrust regulator, which is the state administration for market regulation. Um, we've heard some big-name cases, including Alibaba and uh, Meituan and also Tencent. So um, people didn't really um, expect that uh, the cyberspace uh, administration uh, is also part of the crackdown. The regulations regarding this mechanism took effect in mid-2020. Uh, ever since then, the regulator has never announced um, any public enforcement uh, under this mechanism. So this was the first time they came out and saying, we are doing a, a review uh, in a company. And also... Another factor in this um, situation is that the timing, which is two days after Didi's IPO. So it got a lot of people guessing um, what is exactly behind this uh, unexpected announcement. Mm. But but we don't know for sure what triggered this enforcement targeting Didi. I mean, do you have any sense of of what might have caused it? So the two announcements made by, uh, two main announcements uh, made by this regulator touched upon the issue of personal data processing. And then uh, there are rumors that uh, Didi going uh, to be listed in in the U.S. um, made the authorities in China worried that um, this could create um, an access to Didi's data collected within China for the U.S. authorities. Um, So data has been the central issue that people uh, are thinking about. And um, after the announcements by the Cyberspace uh, Administration, China's securities regulator came out saying they want to crack down on security-related illegal conduct. And in the document, one of the things they want to do is to strengthen the regulation of Chinese company going to be listed in another country. So if you link that uh, announcement with uh, the, 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 the timing of the whole situation, I think it's quite reasonable to say there is something about data processing in this whole thing. All right. So what are the consequences now facing Didi? And I suppose what are the wider implications for the tech industry in China? So under China's cybersecurity law, which the measures for cybersecurity review are based on, the company uh, could face uh, a penalty uh, and uh, employees within the company that are more responsible than others uh, may also face a penalty uh, because primarily this measures for cyber security review is um, targeting procurement of uh, key um, equipment by a company. Um, So 
the penalty could be ten、uh, times the price of the procured equipment. But for internet companies、uh, like Didi, whose main business is conducted、uh, from an app, I think it is currently facing a more serious consequence every day、uh, with its app suspended. Apart from the Uh, suspension of new registration of users and removal of、uh, app from app stores.、Um, a lot of Chinese uh, use um, this app by、um, accessing it in another app,、uh, such as WeChat and Alipay. But the authorities have ordered that all the other websites, the other apps, cannot provide such an access to DD. So this, and as the company has previously warned、uh, investors, this will definitely、um, uh, be a negative impact to the company's、uh, revenue. Shuwan, these are significant developments. Thank you so much for walking me through them today. Thanks, James. Xu Wan is our Hong Kong-based correspondent covering data privacy and protection issues in China. Now, listening into that conversation is our chief correspondent for Greater China, Yonex Li, who is also joining us from Hong Kong. Now,、uh, Yonex, as Xu Wan just mentioned, there,、uh, China has recently used cybersecurity rules rather than antitrust law to regulate the tech sector. What do you make of this switch of regulatory tool? And so I think compared to Alibaba, which was、uh, fined a record two point eight billion dollars by China for anti-competitive conduct back in、um, April, I think the Didi crackdown is、uh, different in nature.、Um, Didi is just introducing a new chapter in China's ongoing epic tech crackdown story, and enforcement is not、uh, limited to you know housekeeping anymore. So it's not just aimed at taking care of. Businesses at home say, uh, punish, uh, punishing Alibaba for not allowing merchants to list on their other platforms, or going after Meituan for similarly,、uh, you know,、uh, restricting restaurants. Rather, is Didi is the latest example of the business getting caught in the geopolitical crossfire between、um, the U.S. and China, and this time is over data. So, what's so sensitive about uh, Didi uh, data? I mean, how does that relate to the U.S. the the broader U.S.-China, I suppose, commercial and geopolitical rivalry which is unfolding at the moment?、Mm-hmm. And there was an interesting report uh, uh, that may explain this. It's by the official Xinhua News Agency back in the summer of 2015. Um, it was a propaganda report that used data from Didi to show, you know, the number of rides to and from、uh, different government ministries in the capital city of Beijing, and it used the data to、uh, praise how civil、uh, diligence were working so diligently even under high temperatures. And、uh, so, say for example, it、uh, mentioned that the Ministry of Public Security was one of the busiest authorities, having having more than thirteen、um, hundred rides. Arriving and departing from his headquarters, and then the anti-corruption watchdog was relatively、uh, no profile, quite quiet、mm-hmm. that day. <laughs> yeah, and then the DD data ex-、um, also revealed exactly when officials left their workplaces at the National Defense, Commerce, IT, Foreign Affairs, Education, and Land Ministries.
And so all of this was to really illustrate that they're all hardworking and that they're doing a good job. So they, they hadn't thought about the possible sensitivity of it. Right. They didn't see the information as, as sensitive back then. But now, you know, as the rivalry between China and the U.S. intensifies, and this information looks more like in, intelligence material. And so uh, China obviously doesn't want this info, information to, um, to fall into the hands of the U.S. government. Mm. Yeah. Now, are there any clues to suggest that China was in fact aware of the uh, critical importance of data before this issue of Didi uh, came to the fore? Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, Um, China's state council, the cabinet, it uh, made clear in an action plan back in August 2015, uh, where it identified big data as a fundamentally uh, strategic resource of national significance. So um, saying it's critical to reshaping China's competitive advantage. Put another way, it, it means that a failure to, you know, this, to steer use of big data in the right direction uh, will hurt China's um, competitive edge. So obviously China is uh, counting the U.S. as its number one rifle, at least in economic terms. And um, remember also Didi has a massive database because uh, it has uh, 377 million active users and then it completes 25 million transportation transactions every day. So if they are able to collect more inf- personal information from the consumers, then they could draw more uh, deductions and conclusions about China and its people. And obviously, the Chinese government doesn't want itself to be tracked like this. Well, that's right. I mean, it's of, of strategic yeah. importance as well as commercial yeah. uh, value, I suppose. Now, there are a bunch of regulators. Now, you've written about how many regulators there are, in fact, involved in the DD mm-hmm. cybersecurity review. Let's talk about that for a moment. What mm-hmm. uh, what are they and what are their different roles? Okay. So there are a total of seven regulators involved. It's not just uh, the cyberspace uh, administration, but also the Ministry of Public Security, uh, State Security, Transport, Tax Authority, and the State Administration for Micro-Regulation. And I think what's interesting here is that the Ministry of Natural Resources is also involved, and this uh, confirms some uh, speculation surrounding the sensitivity of DD data from a uh, geopolitical point of view. Um, That's because the DD vehicles, they have recorders that collect uh, high precision data regarding roads in urban and rural, uh, rural areas. And that could give quite a clear view of the geographical landscape of China. Mapping is always a sensitive issue in China and has military uh, implications. So that's why you see um, this time the Ministry of Natural Resources is also involved in the, in the review. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean that that explains, I suppose, the the, the wide ranging uh, regulatory review that we're dealing with. But let's say for a moment that Didi um, does emerge from this cybersecurity review, uh, vindicated, if not vindicated, at least all in one piece. What happens then? I mean, does it go back to business as usual? I think even if it gets past the cybersecurity review, that won't be the end of the story, because there's still uncertainty for DD. Um, we know there's an ongoing investigation by the antitrust regulator on DD uh, possible gun jumping, um, which is not noti- notifying properly. Uh, it's merger with Uber China back in 2016. And this investigation, um, we are still waiting for the results. Uh, we continue to present uncertainty to the company's outlook. And at the same time, there's also the reputational cost. Why? Because some, you know, some 
Chinese users said that they would switch to other uh, apps just because Didi had harmed natural, national interest. And uh, the rivals also took the opportunity. They reacted quickly to give out massive subsidies to try to capture more market share from drivers and consumers. And um, there was uh, a cab driver told us that um, the orders that they got on the DD platform uh, dropped sharply after the incident um, because the app is still you know, uh, up and running for existing users, just that the new uh, registration is suspended. And I think um, very much like other geopolitical uh, crisis where you know, Chinese consumers always have a role to play and their boycotts may affect um, the company's uh, financial performance as much as the regulators do. Yonix, this is a great story, so thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks, James. Yonix Lee, MDX's chief correspondent for Greater China, joining us there from Hong Kong. And we'll post a link to the work of both Yonix and Shu Wan at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X, marketinsight.com. And of course, our subscribers have the full portfolio of reporting chronicling this extraordinary moment of history for China. Up next, Schrems 2, one year on, the political backdrop of the data protection divorce of the decade. Thanks for making it this far. This is MLEX's weekly podcast, available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. I'm James Paniki, MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor. And doesn't time fly when you're desperately trying to find a solution to a seemingly insoluble data transfer problem? It's been a year since the Schrems II judgment by the European courts, and it appears that we're no closer to working out how best to manage data transfers between the EU and the US. Today, we'll take a look at that story from both sides of the Atlantic. In fact, we'll head even further west than that with Mike Swift ready to join us from San Francisco. Vesela Gladicheva is MLEX's senior correspondent covering privacy and cybersecurity. She's in London and she joins me uh, right now. Now, Vesela, firstly, just remind me what Schrems 2, as we're calling it, what was it all about? Uh, so Schrems 2 is uh, really a, a spectacular invalidation of the uh, EU-US uh, privacy shield accord for data transfers, which happened uh, in July 2020 uh, by the EU uh, Court of Justice in Luxembourg. The court found that um, mainly because of US surveillance practices, uh, the personal data of European citizens, uh, which companies sent from the EU to the US, uh, isn't sufficiently protected. Uh, it, it was also as part of a uh, larger case uh, brought by activist Max Schrems, in particular against uh, Facebook's uh, data transfers uh, to the US using another data transfer mechanism, standard contractual clauses. So this judgment combined two very popular mechanisms to to transfer uh, data between the EU and the US. The standard contractual clauses remained valid, 
uh, although the court introduced some strict requirements for companies uh, to use that mechanism, the Privacy Shield uh, Accord, however, was uh, completely voided. Mm. Now, we talked about this a full year ago. Back then, we were talking about how uh, inevitably uh, there would be attempts on the part of both sides to try to reach a deal to rectify this, but nothing has happened as of yet. Absolutely. Both sides uh, say they are in talks. The EU says uh, it's in intensive talks uh, with US counterparts on finding a new replacement deal and and legal uncertainty for companies. Um, However, we have absolutely no idea what they have agreed on so far uh, and, and any sort of time frame as to when we might see a final agreement. That's where we're heading. Um, I think people, uh, companies um, and lawyers believe that there will be a deal uh, uh, at the end of it all. Um, but we just don't know how it's going to take. Just to compare with the negotiations uh, back in 2015-2016 on the previous EU-US data transfer agreement, uh, Safe Harbor, which was also invalidated by the EU court, um, and Privacy Shield was its replacement. Those talks took only four months. This time round, uh, it's uh, taken a year, uh, and we're still nowhere near reaching an agreement. And the, the the fear, I suppose, is that any new rules that might be put in place might themselves be invalidated uh, by a court further down the track, in which case it's not worth the effort, right? Absolutely. Uh, that's a fear wa- widespread among uh, businesses, companies, Um, And talking to some lawyers and business representatives, they are quite confident that that's exactly what's going to happen, the so-called SHREMS uh, 3. At the same time, uh, you know, businesses have been pushing for for an agreement. They are in in, in limbo and and they do want a a stable uh, data transfer agreement. Uh, to be put in place, um, despite the risks of it being uh, invalidated again. Now, we're all awaiting to hear the next step in a case in Ireland against Facebook. Just remind us why the Irish situation is relevant to this discussion. So the Irish case concerns the standard contractual uh, clauses, the other widespread mechanism for transferring data. And we're expecting the um, Irish regulator to uh, ban Facebook's uh, transfers to the US. Um, and it's it's a decision that will likely redouble uh, efforts to find um, uh, a lasting agreement um, between EU and US data flows. It makes sense because even though it will concern only Facebook's particular uh, transfers, then it will set a precedent for um, other companies around Europe and, and how they shift data uh, using those standard contractual clauses. And Ireland, of course, is part of the EU, but the UK is no longer part of the EU since uh, Brexit has now been fully consummated. Is the UK government likely to go its own way on this? Yes, the UK government officials have already uh, said that they're in talks with US counterparts and they are uh, willing to find um, uh, a new US-UK uh, agreement on data transfers. And we're expecting later this month uh, the government to publish a list of uh, countries, uh, potential countries for it to negotiate so-called adequacy uh, agreements. And the US is very likely to be on that list. Mm. All right. Look, more broadly, uh, is is there a long-term solution to this issue of global data flows? And if there is, what is it? 
Well, we're starting to see something on the horizon. Um, there are talks uh, at the governmental level, high-level talks within the OECD, for example, on um, agreeing basic principles of uh, data access, accessing personal data uh, by government authorities, ensuring that um, uh, data continues to flow uh, between countries. But negotiators are... Uh, making really baby steps. Uh, talks are going really slowly. Um, it's something that we might see uh, come to fruition uh, in in years' time. It's it's not an immediate solution, and it's something that Max Schrems has uh, indicated that might prove a better solution compared to uh, you know privacy shield or sort of bilateral agreements between the EU, EU and the US. Vesla, thank you so much for taking the time to explain this to us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, James. Vesla Gladicheva is an MLEX senior correspondent reporting on telecoms, privacy and cybersecurity from London. But how has this issue been playing out on the other side of the Atlantic? The Biden administration has been saying all of the right things about data transfers since taking office in January. It's made some strong appointments to key roles. Yet despite that, there has been little visible progress, leaving Max Schrems to question whether there is indeed any prospect at all of data transfers to the US. Mike Swift is MLEX's Chief Global Digital Risk Correspondent. He was listening into that chat with Vessela and he joins me now from San Francisco. So, Mike, tell me something about those political dynamics in the US. How is this issue playing out at the moment? Well, my sense is that there's a growing sense of impatience at um, the amount of time it's taking to to reach a solution. Um, We had a kind of a snippy comment come out from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce this week on, you know, the anniversary of Schrems 2. And it really seemed to signal that that um, uh, U.S. companies are really feeling starting to feel the pinch of, you know, the legal uncertainty in transferring data to Europe between uh, the U.S. and Europe. So, so I, I think there's a, a lot of um, uh, impatience and, and a lot of uh, need for for the U.S. To, uh, government to show some some uh, progress here. Now, for Biden, there is a high political cost, and that is the the risk of being seen as weak on national security. So. Uh, the prospect of law enforcement agencies gaining access to data exported from Europe. That is underpinning uh, this uh, discussion when it comes to the Privacy Shield and and Schrems too. Uh, How can that discussion be managed by Biden in your view? Yeah, I mean, the U.S. is increasingly isolated as being a Western democracy that doesn't have a national privacy law. And, you know, one way to look at this whole issue is that the U.S. is kind of in this very difficult conflict between national security and privacy. And, you know, there's a very strong feeling in this country, you know, in the wake of the September 11th attacks, which are 20 years ago now, but still very much a part of the the memory of this country, um, that we can't let our guard down on national security. And, you know, Biden has just made the decision to pull out of Afghanistan. There's a lot of, you know, geopolitical uh, calculations that he has to go through. And I think that makes it really pretty untenable for him to say, we're going to restrict 
the intelligence activities of the CIA and the NSA and the other alphabet soup of U.S. spy agencies. So it's, it's a difficult quandary for him. Now, of course, in the U.S., we've been covering data protection laws state by state. There's no sign yet that a national privacy law is a high priority for the administration. Is that a fair assumption to make? Yeah, I, th- I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, there hasn't been really any signal from the Biden administration to, to lead in Congress on, uh, you know, passing a privacy law, data protection law. So what we're seeing this year is that uh, increasingly other uh, states are passing their own laws. Uh, Colorado just uh, uh, signed their legislation into law earlier this year. Virginia passed and signed uh, uh, legislation into law. Connecticut came close. And, and, you know, next year, some other states could get over the hump and, and pass their laws. And uh, at the same time, there's really no visible progress in Congress you know, no sign that that uh, Congress is going to pass a very what would be a very complex piece of legislation. So that that's uh, complicating the whole picture with Privacy Shield. And we should spell that out in the sense that there is not, um, given that it's a state by state issue at the moment, there is no national interlocutor for the Europeans, right? I mean, the only thing the Europeans can do is deal with all fifty um, states of the Union. Yeah. And, you know, it's a very interesting question uh, that uh, California, of course, has um, the strongest privacy law and the oldest. And they passed the initial law in 2018. And then voters last year passed an updated version that brings Connecticut, uh, California's law, I'm sorry, um, very close to the GDPR in Europe. And uh, when the new um, California Data Protection Commission held its first meeting last month, one member of the board said, could we aqu- uh, uh, apply for adequacy to the EU? And they're all like, well, well, how would we do it? Who would do it? Would the governor do it? I mean, nobody knows. So it's this very gray area of the law where um, theoretically a state like California maybe could do that, but but nobody knows for sure how it would really work. And it, it's definitely not... Uh, a better solution than having a, a national deal, that's for sure. So what would industry want here? Is there a sense that uh, a national law would be in the interest of a business or are they happy for weaker uh, state laws to be enacted? A lot of privacy advocates are concerned that what's happening here is this very um, complicated scheme, which is ultimately going to leave the U.S. with a very weak law because they're afraid that, you know, these somewhat weaker laws like the, the Virginia's are going to become kind of the uh, the floor for, for privacy legislation. And then Congress will come in and say, OK, we don't need to have very strong protections uh, for a national law and and uh, the, the consumers will, will lose out. That That's sort of the fear. You know, whether that happens, whether that's the reality, I don't know. But but it's definitely something that I hear from a lot of people in the privacy community. Mike, you mentioned before in passing the issue in California as to who should be uh, negotiating with the EU. Is that question a bit more broadly? Is that question something that uh, is being asked by um, by players in the US? Who should be at the negotiating table with the Europeans? Well, I think the feeling is that the people who are at the negotiating table are the right people. Um, there's the official who is sort of uh, taking the lead is a guy named Christopher Hoff, who has a lot of experience in this area, is well-regarded, um, has uh, 
experience with people on both sides of the Atlantic. And the new Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo, has really gotten involved as well. So there are good people that are working on this, but there's still this sort of confounding lack of progress and lack of detail. Uh, they haven't said, well, we're working on you know um, any particular solution. And that really allows sort of breathing room for somebody like Max Schrems to step in and say, you know, there's never going to be a solution. And, um, you know, in the meantime, the world is moving on in terms of technology. You're seeing companies like Cisco, which has just opened a new data center in Frankfurt, Germany, and has just been advertising that, you know, people who are using our WebEx chat in Europe no longer have to export any data to the United States because we can keep it all in the EU because of our new data centers. So in a way, we we have this political negotiation which is going on, but technology moves so fast that, that in a way, um, it, it almost seems like the, the political process could be left behind uh, by what's happening much more quickly in technology. So yeah, it's an interesting situation, that's for sure. Mike, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been great. Thanks, James. Mike Swift is MLEX's Chief Global Digital Risk Correspondent, and he was joining us from San Francisco, which is clearly the place to be when it comes to privacy policy settings in the US at the moment. Now, Mike and Vessela have put together a great piece of analysis to mark the one year of Schrems 2, and it's ready for you to read at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight, all one word, dot com. Just make a beeline for the News Hub tab, where you can get a taste of the very best of MLEX's reporting and analysis. Now, we've gone way over time this week as well, meaning that I'll need to decamp as quickly as possible with the assurance that we'll be back in your feed next week at the same time. From me, James Paniki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you very much for your company. I'll see you again soon. Bye for now. <music>